You're listening to CRST, the podcast from Bryn Mawr Communications. Hello, and thank you for tuning in. I'm Dr. Carl Stonecipher, and I'm thrilled to join you as the host of this episode of CRST, the podcast, where I'll be delving into what it takes to bring innovation to the marketplace. Joining me to discuss this topic is my great old friend, Kevin Waltz. And I don't mean old in the sense that he's old. I just mean we've been around the block together for a long, long time. So I look forward to, you know, discussing why the relationship with industry is so important to innovation. You know, how do we pick our partners, Kevin? And, you know, how do we balance working with multiple companies? So, Kevin, you ready to start uh, the process? Yes, sir. So tell me a little bit about your practice. Tell me about your experiences outside the United States with industry, just just general what you do and how you do it. Sure. I practice in Indianapolis, Indiana for 23 years. Um, about uh, 20 of that was spent uh, heavily involved in industry. About halfway through that, about 10 years before I left practice in Indianapolis, I started doing um, sponsored research in Central America and uh, continue to do that to this day. Very cool. So I wanna start off because I know you started you know, early in your career as opposed to later. And I, I, I consider what you're, you're talking about early. You know, Let's go back a little bit. How did you really get started working with industry? Was it a friend? Was it you know, somebody in industry you had met at a meeting? How did, how did that happen for you? It was really by chance. Um, I had been unlucky. And at age 41, developed cataracts that were pretty rapidly progressive. And my partner at the time, Mike Orr, implanted array multifocal lenses in my eyes in 1998. And I had a great experience and I started using the arrays as a refractive modality and in a large volume in my cataract practice. And um, in about 2002, uh, Nick Tarantino of AMO asked me to get involved in research because they had an urgent need to do some things with the array. And I agreed to do it and was surprised at how much I enjoyed it. And it just grew and grew from there. So as it grew from there, Kevin, you know, how did you kind of choose who to partner with or did they choose you? Were they so impressed with some of the talent you showed with the early clinical trials you performed or, or how did you get chosen for certain things you do now? Well, it's a really great observation. Nobody told me this, but this is something you learn experience-wise going through it. You can think of a clinical trial, especially for ILLs, is kind of like a basketball season. I'm in Indiana, so I got to use basketball. You could use a soccer season. Hey, I'm in North Carolina. Ball. We got basketball here too, so I get it. All right. So, you know, they're in a basketball team. There's five people on the floor. There's five people that typically get subs, and there's five people that don't get off the bench. And so when you're first on a research team, you're the five people on the bench. You're kind of given a chance to see what you can do. And at the end of the trial, it usually lasts about a year. So the next year, 
after the trial is over, you kind of do a debrief after the season, if you will, of the trial. And lo and behold, there's five stars, there's five pretty goods, and there's five people that aren't asked back on the team. And you go through that evolution and you either get better in a hurry or you get retired from research. And we, um, in ophthalmology, we're all ultra competitive. And we love, for the most part, being judged and judged well. So I found that, it, that research helped me become a better surgeon. It showed me my weak points were, and it showed me what I needed to improve, and it accelerated my um, skills as a surgeon really, really rapidly because there wasn't any place to hide. In normal clinical practice as an ophthalmologist, you can hide a lot of things. In research, you can't hide a single thing. And so it made me better, and I like getting better. Yeah, I, I kind of agree. I had a little bit different experience. I was lucky. Uh, I was a chief resident at Tulane, and a lot of the industry, specifically for me at the time, Alcon and Allergan, took us out to their, you know, research facilities and basically showed us what they had. And then, you know, from those introductions, you know, whether it was dry eye or intraocular lenses or laser, you know, vision correction, you know, I just started saying, you know, I have interest in this. So I encourage those people that are listening, talk to the people at the booths or talk to, you know, people at the meetings basically and, and share your interest or share your ideas. I think, you know, Kevin, you've had great ideas that have come to fruition. So if you're thinking about an idea, so if somebody's listening in, how are you going to choose who to partner with uh, in a company? If it's your idea, you've thought, you know, original thought, or maybe you have experienced working with the lens and you thought you could make that product better. Yeah, no, it's a great question. And to your point, I agree with you that if somebody is interested in getting involved in research, there are always opportunities. What you don't want to do is you don't want to overpromise a company and harm their project because you can't keep up with the group. So you always want to make sure that you can uh, handle what you're uh, getting involved in and, and seek the guidance of some senior people and help get their help in the process. And most people are going to be happy to help you with that. And I think you mentioned in the article, you're working with uh, a company uh, in the field of glaucoma. You want to expand on that a little bit? Yeah. Um, we've got this really cool project that we're doing in Central America. Uh, the project uses a Fento laser that's OCT driven to do a OCG driven uh, Fento laser MIGS without a device procedure. It's somewhat similar to docking uh, an eye against a Fento flak maker, except that you're treating it with glaucoma. And you know, it's very, very technical. But at the end of the day, it's a surgeon coupling a laser to the patient. And so some PhDs that are very smart created this device, but they didn't bother to ask the surgeon to participate in the alpha model. So the first model was very effective, but it was clumsy. And so 
they made a second model that's going to be likely the commercial model that other surgeons will use. And they invited surgeons to the table to help create the second model. And so one of the things that's always a challenge for a company is how early do you let surgeons in in the design phase? And for me, I think the sooner you let them in, the better the product you get because the surgeons have got different insights than the PhDs. Totally agree. I'm working with a company and my biggest challenge sometimes working with these individuals is, you know, you got to be gentle. And I think that in terms of, you know, you got to be very, you know, uh, forthright if you don't agree with, with the concepts and the direction they're going in, or you have to prove it to them sometimes, unfortunately, clinically, but that can be very costly for some of these, these companies in terms of, you know, what they go through in the process of multiple protocols and, and how we go down those arena. So, so you're in the field of glaucoma. Um, how do you balance, you know, what happens when another company comes to you and says, hey, Kevin, uh, I want, you know, do you work with me on a glaucoma project? You know, and, and I know you're doing this in Central America now, so maybe I don't want to delve into to secrets, but maybe you can give us real world examples on how you balance, you know, one company against the other in the same field or maybe the same pharmaceutical type of product. No, it's a great question. The, there's a couple rules that you cannot break. One is don't mislead the company that you're working with. So if you've got a clear-cut conflict of interest, you got to tell them. And it's their prerogative to say no at that point. If you don't tell them, that's a problem for you and it's a problem for them. What you have to remember is that the companies, the people that work in the companies may only get three four projects their entire career. A busy researcher might get 20. So for the company, that project is precious. It defines their career. It defines how much money's in their retirement account. It defines the reputation. So you have to be respectful of research in the project to get in a conflict of interest with them. Number two, you don't want to have competing enrollment in different projects at the same time. So if you've got company A that wants to have open angle glaucoma, then don't get company B, C, and D doing it at the same time. It's one of the things that the retina docs get into trouble with. There's so much research with AMD that a busy uh, retina researcher has a really hard time distributing their number of their cases among the various projects. Um, in anterior segment, that's considered a real no-no. So you got to be careful about that. In Central America, we've got multiple simultaneous glaucoma procedures at the same facility that we're studying, but every procedure's got different criteria. So one procedure happens with cataract surgery. So you have to be phakic and need cataract surgery for one. In another, you have to be pseudophakic in order to qualify for that one. And another one, it's you have to be phakic, but you can't have a cataract. And so by doing it that way, you can maximize your enrollment and minimize your conflict. Totally agree. I, I years ago, I, I would say it was probably 15 years ago, I was very much in conflict in terms of dealing with certain pharmaceutical companies because, you know, I had a lot of antibiotics coming out. 
had a lot of non-steroidals coming about. And I, I said, you know, I'm going to go to somebody that I, I trust in, in the field. And so I called up uh, Dick Lindstrom. We were at a meeting uh, in Norway and I said, hey, um, can we go to breakfast? And his comment was very similar to yours. You, you've got to stick with one, you know, dog that you're going to hunt with. You got to tell them, hey, I'm working with this other company already. You know, I'd be more than happy to collaborate on another project. You know, maybe I'm working with an antibiotic uh, with Alcon and maybe a non-steroidal with a different company. So I think that, that, you know, we have to look in terms of how that goes. You know, number two, we cannot, you know, NDAs are, are gold. You know, you can't break across NDAs. And, you know, I can't discuss that is legitimate. And I think one of the other things that's important about, you know, balancing with multiple companies or choosing companies is if you don't feel comfortable with that product, for me, for example, I don't do a lot of glaucoma. And I get asked all the time, would you like to do a glaucoma study? I said, look, you know, I'm really not your guy. Let me suggest about three or four other people to choose from that I've worked with in other arenas and you may want someone else. And really the companies really value that. They don't want someone that's not, you know, gonna promote the product. And then lastly, I think important that you brought up is a lot of these companies' balance sheets may depend on the longevity of their company on this single product. So, you know, it may make or break a company if the product doesn't ultimately make it to the approval process or someone else inheriting that company down the road. Totally agree with you. Yeah, so, so this relationship between industry and clinician surgeon is so important for me right now. Um, I'm working on both the pharmaceutical side as well as, you know, the device side. And, and I don't know, I mean, you probably know, like me, you know, we lost Malvina to pulmonary during COVID. And so, you know, a lot of these, these relationships at the FDA that you and I have formulated over the years, you know, in terms of, of appropriate relationships, they change when the individual changes that you're dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis. So, you know, Wiley Chambers, I've worked with Wiley Chambers on many projects and he's very, you know, appropriate and matter of fact, and he'll say, you know, this is the protocol and this is what I like about it. And this is what you got to fix. So I think in this day and age with, with new, you know, people in place at the FDA, um, collaboration between surgeon and company is of the utmost importance. What do you think? I totally agree. And let me give you an example of one of our sister countries in Canada. For many, many years, Canada was a great place to do cutting edge research. And I didn't understand why, uh, but all of a sudden that changed. About five years ago, there was an abrupt change and Canada was no longer a great place to do research. And it turned out that there was a single individual in the Canadian equivalent of the FDA that really wanted to promote research in Canada, which they did to great effect for two decades. And all of a sudden that individual retired and things changed. And that's one of the issues that drove my research business in Central America. You couldn't do it in Canada anymore. And so sometimes as much as a single person changing jobs will have a profound effect. It shouldn't, but it's research is a very personal business. Yes, it's the scientific method, but it is infused with very strong personal opinions.
And, and with that thought in mind, you know, tell me some of the most memorable collaborations you've had and why. I know one of your earliest collaborations was you, uh, as many surgeons like myself, uh, adopted, you know, I had laser vision correction with one of the earlier systems that I was working with. So I was willing to actually, you know, put my eyes under the system because I felt that the femtosecond laser was important. And I felt that, you know, this new Wavefront optimized platform was important. Uh, what about your most memorable collaborations? I had a personal experience too, um, that kind of got me started in research. As I said, I was a relatively young man at age 41 when I suddenly developed cataracts. In addition to that, I'd been previously wearing bifocals for about 20 years because I had an accommodative excess when I was a teenager and I first got glasses. And it helped. My, my myopia stayed stable for many, many years and then all of a sudden went away as part of my developing cataracts. And so I decided to go with a multifocal lens, even though I was probably the first eye surgeon in the world to get a multifocal lens because I didn't want to wear bifocals for the rest of my life. And so I was willing to put myself uh, in that position because I was willing to take a risk to get what I wanted. I had a wonderful partner who had probably the best pre-op risk benefit discussion ever. Um, you know, we're both in our early 40s. We're busy surgeons. We got busy practices. It's a big deal. If he loses me, he's in trouble. If I lose me, my wife's in trouble. And so his comment was, don't worry, Kevin. If this doesn't work for you, you're going to be the best paid medical ophthalmologist in the state. <laughs> and I said, good. let's go. That's confidence. That's right. And so it ends up being a very personal decision. You have to trust the people that you work with. Of course. And, and so you and I both know that, that companies change, people within companies change, you know, ophthalmology you know, it seems like they, the players change, you know, maybe company to company, but it's still similar players at a new company. I call them, you know, the embryologist type of individual that wants to work with maybe a startup company versus the other individual that's more, you know, comfortable in a, in a role in a larger corporation and, and moving an approved product down the road. So, you know, what benefits do you think you've enjoyed through your collaborations with industry? Because I've, I've had quite a few myself. They're enormous, actually. I mean, one of it is, Carl, is just you're in my relationship. You and I have a relationship because we were on a team together climbing a mountain that we called a research project. And so we shared that angst and the joy and the heartbreak multiple times. So it builds a closeness and a trust. You know what that person's like under stress. And that's a really important thing to know. Um, I have enjoyed industry because they're not doctors, typically. They're PhDs, they're administrative people. They have skills that are different than mine. And so it broadens my worldview to work with people like that and to trust them. You also learn characteristics about people that um, you can trust or not. So you learn to make judgments about people and whether or not you're going to work with them. And so being involved in research 
made me a more astute clinician. It made me uh, understand what trust was all about and made me a better doctor. And I think a lot, like you say, a lot of these relationships are, are life lasting. You watch their children grow up. Uh, um, you go to maybe their children's wedding sometimes. I've done that, in fact, in terms of with Ernie Bravo. I, his son was out here at the University of North Carolina, and he and I were working, you know, with Alcon and the Wave Life Project. And so he said, hey, we look out for my son while he's at University of North Carolina. And ultimately, he and I developed a great relationship and, and ultimately got invited to his son's wedding. So I think that you develop friendships with industry, you've developed friendships with the other ophthalmologic partners. And, and like you said, the competition can be healthy. So, you know, I can look over my shoulder and say, well, how many is Kevin enrolled? And then you can look over your shoulder and say, well, how many is Carl enrolled? And, you know, and so it's that, that healthy competition, but it's also outcomes. And I think in terms of, you know, the big, you know, issue for someone like you and me is we're trying to make a better widget. We're trying to make a better product because we want to make people see better with less complications. So I think a lot of those collaborations in the end, you and I may end up operating on family members of these people or friends of these individuals. So, so I think that, you know, collaboration goes beyond just the protocol. Wouldn't you agree? Totally. And there's all sorts of things that happen that don't, people don't talk about. For instance, uh, a company that I've worked with for many years, wanted to uh, do something with the doc in Florida, Toby Tyson. Toby and I were very competitive on the AMO J&J research team. He's a spectacular guy, a spectacular surgeon, and I reassured the company that they were going to be very happy working with him. And, you know, sure enough, they showed up and Toby did all the right things for him and He's on their team now. But part of the reason they went is because Toby and I had been in competition and respected each other in the competition. And this team respected me. So you kind of rub each other a little bit and then you move on and you, you've got a confidence uh, and a, a shortcut to getting a good team. And I think, you know, our, our early experiences with industry mold you know what we do outside of industry and inside of industry i know you and i share our very good friend bill link i was actually a medical student when i first started working with bill link who is uh, for me one of the giants in ophthalmology in terms of, of what he's done for this industry and how he's brought you know relationships uh to the to marketplace and and products to the marketplace but at the same time bill will be the first person to tell you that he's had a lot of failures. So, so tell me some of your earliest experiences, either with Bill Link, or I know you worked with Nick early on, some of these other people, and how that's changed maybe over the years. Active focus. Um, I was, and you, I've been working with them for a long time. And there was an interest in active focus bringing U.S. surgeons down to Central America to get them trained in the IC8. And one of the things that was very interesting was that Bill said, I want to meet your Central American partners. So we were actually in L.A. at ASCRS in 2017, and we arranged a nice dinner. 
Bill and his lovely wife, my Central American partners, their wives. And it was just fun to see. Bill didn't ask a single question about ophthalmology. He talked to the docs, talked to the wives, and after dinner said, let's do it. I, I like him. So based on that interaction, basically their parents had raised them right. So Bill made a judgment that he was going to work with them. And I thought that was incredibly insightful. Um, other people might have gotten into the nitty gritty. And Bill left that to me. He wanted to know what kind of persons they were. And once he was satisfied with that, that's all I needed to know. Yeah, you know, I, I can I can share Tom Frenzy. I remember meeting uh, in a hotel with Tom uh, when he was first working with Wavefront Abarometry. And I just saw him last weekend at this star ICL meeting. And, you know, some of the first comments are, what are you doing now? It's more like, what are your family doing now? Jim Mazo is another one that I, I'm very close to. Where the first thing that comes out of our mouths, where's your children and what are they doing? Long before, you know, we may even talk about the product that we're actually working on. But I think that, you know, you and I both know that, that the industry leaders, you know, like these guys would say that, you know, some of our, our conversations may have saved them millions of dollars in terms of, you know, research or protocol. So I feel like these collaborations that have grown over the years, the trust that's grown over the years has really helped um, move products along, but also help companies from making bad decisions. Absolutely. And I will tell you another example of, of trust and, you know, performance. Late March of 2010, uh, we were due to start the Technistoric One trial. At that time, for about six years, I was the lead off site for IOL studies for J AMO and J&J. But what had happened that year, the executive's compensation depended on that trial getting started no later than March 31st of that year. Well, a, a few days after that, ASCRS was in Boston. And I won't go into the details, but we had unbelievable roadblocks leading up to that study start. And we didn't let the roadblock stop us, neither myself um, nor the uh, AMO J&J people allowed us to be stopped by these ridiculous roadblocks. And we got the study started on March 31st. And it was such a big deal that basically every exec at AMO and J&J called me up and said, thank you. We know what you did. We appreciate it. We won't forget. And part of what you do in research is, if it's possible, you do it easily. If it's nearly impossible, you do it anyhow. And if it's impossible, you figure out a way to do it. Totally agree. Now, one other thing I, I, I have to add, my earliest uh, collaboration, I remember it was Dave Harden and Helen Wu and I at the Hawaiian Eye easily over 20 some odd years ago, we're, we're out on the beach with our kids having a wine party and we were eating pizza and I brought a bunch of wine, as you know, that's that's kind of my my standard operative procedure sometimes. 
And, you know, now that's grown into this huge wine party that we have where we can stand around and we can talk about a new project or we can stand around and talk about our kids and, and what they're doing. And, and I know you've been to the wine party and I'll, I'll hope you'll be at the wine party uh, this year in Hawaii. So with the last uh, few minutes in terms of us wrapping up this podcast, uh, I know you're thankful for a lot in terms of Thanksgiving, but do you have any last comments or things that you're thankful for? Uh, mine's my friendship with you and other friendships with some of these people we, we've mentioned around the world. So a uh, last couple of minutes, what, what are your comments? Yeah, no, Carl, I am thankful. You know, we had a chance to catch up at uh, Academy recently. And I am thankful for so many years and so many places we've been able to interact. But I'm also thankful for the time and the place that I live. You know, one of the things that I have realized through hard experience is I live in a time and a place that supports my frail body so that I can recover from health issues. I mean, here I was a 41-year-old ophthalmologist that had cataract surgery, and I came out better than I went in. That would not have happened in the 60s. We had not evolved to that point yet. And so the research that all the people that came before us did and was completed allowed you and I to have the career we've had. And hopefully you and I will have created and helped to create something for the next generation to come. So that does it for this episode of CRST, the podcast. I really hope that you enjoyed the time that Kevin and I spent together today. And if you want to read more about how innovation is brought to the market and the whole role of the clinician or surgeon in that process, you got to go to www.crsttoday.com. You know, with that, I'm going to thank Kevin. Thank all of you that spent the time listening to us. I'm Dr. Carl Stonecipher, and this has been CRST, the podcast. Thank you again for listening. For more shows like the one you just listened to, check out the podcast channel on itube.net.